No one ever asked me what I wanted until I got、mm. here. Deal with what's in front of you and try、mm. to serve. But there are ways that our jobs can make us feel like there's something wrong with us. Welcome to Venture Visionaries. I'm Thomas Agemet, and in today's episode, we're exploring the interplay between business strategy and personal growth. Now, my guest today, Douglas Chu, is a partner and coach in residence at Avalanche VC, investing the first institutional capital in technology companies, transforming how people learn, earn, and grow. He also works as an independent executive coach, exemplifying our themes of building your own career path and infusing them with personal growth. But my story with Douglas begins over a decade ago on a trip to Yosemite. As a ragtag group of would-be friends, most of us immigrants, fairly new to America, went on an adventure, eager for new experiences and new connections. We were blown away by nature's grandeur and inspired by our youthful desire to explore both the world and each other. And we made quick friends. And yet, one person did stand out: this brilliant yet inscrutable figure. Who, while being a business major in college, was now completing his English PhD. He was a person who was clearly deeply interesting because he was deeply interested in the world around him, and yet he was inscrutable. It was really difficult to get beneath the surface and figure out what really motivated him, what he wanted out of life, and why. And so, it was a huge surprise to me when the next time we connected, Douglish was an executive coach, not just connected to his own inner journey, but working to inspire others to do the same. And he'd taken a pretty impressive path to getting there. From partnering with top health systems at McKinsey to empowering nonprofits in education equity, Douglas has done it all. And connecting those experiences is his philosophy of doing the inner work to unlock outer growth that resonates profoundly with our discussion on leveraging human capital as a strategic business advantage. In this episode, we're going to be delving into Douglas's Singaporean upbringing and how it affects his approach to leadership and business. His transformative career journey into coaching, and we'll explore how his unique perspectives on personality systems, life design, and founder success can inspire all of us to embrace unstructured time and confront our blind spots. Without further ado, let's dive into a conversation with Douglas now. I'm really curious how your upbringing on the other side of the world shaped your initial approaches to leadership and business in ways that might be different than somebody who's just U.S. born and raised. So there are a few kind of ways I introduce people to Singapore if they, you know, maybe don't know beyond the stereotypes of what they hear in the news. So one thing is we have a new prime minister in the line of succession. <laughs> He's been <laughs> named. But what's so interesting is if you look at his record on press, what he's、mm. said. He's known for being unassuming. He's known for being easy to work with.、Mm. And when he was asked, like, "Oh, do you have any designs on higher posts?" he would say, "I have never hankered after post position or power." <laughs> and so I say that 
to kind of give a bit of a like a, a kind of introduction to like how do Singaporeans think about leadership, which is to say the worst thing would be to want it too much. Mm. <laughs> you know, you get recognized mm. for good work, you get tapped mm. on the shoulder, you kind of keep your head down and do all the things you're supposed to do, and then one day you yeah. get anointed. The worst yeah. thing would be to want it too much, right? To be on record mm. advocating mm. for yourself. And so there you can see the big difference between the US and Singapore, where yeah. when I came here, I realized that if you do that, you will get nowhere. <laughs> no mm. one is recognizing mm. your quiet heads down work. No one is going to come to you and anoint you. Yeah. So that leads me to the second thing, which is because I've had to teach myself how to make my way in the US, yeah. I have a sort of different relationship to call it US corporate culture than most mm. Americans have, because mm. I can sort of objectify it. You know, mm. it's like when you grow up in, and maybe you share this experience, when you grow up in a system, you're kind of like, well, that's what's taken for granted. Yeah. And I had to sort of learn it and teach it to myself and mm. find words for it. So I have a different relationship with it now yeah. than perhaps someone who grew up with it does. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the ways that you've seen that different relationship with it show up? No one ever asked me what I wanted until I got mm. here. One of the things I had to learn and teach myself is kind of call it self-advocacy, mm. right? Like how do you explain yourself to others? How do you craft a story for where you've come from, what you're doing and where you're headed? There was a lot of discomfort around it for me in the beginning because mm. it felt so selfish. It felt like me, me, me. And it kind yeah. of felt almost egotistical in a way that in yeah. Singapore would have been frowned upon. What I realized was that here, it's not seen that way. It kind of gives people a handle. Like, how do I relate to this person? How do I help this person? Mm. I didn't realize that, you know, without telling people, hey, here's what I want and here's how you can help me, that mm. actually helped them help me. Do you ever find that your experience in Singapore gives you eyes to understand things about American culture that people who are born here would miss? I will say that I've also brought with me like a lot of pragmatism, <laughs> mm. like what works, you know, like I mm. said, I taught myself, figured out how to make it work, how to get ahead, how to succeed. I think there was a sort of hard nosed pragmatism around like, oh, well, that wasn't working. What's going to yeah. work? So let's figure it out. So yeah. I, I do think that is very Singaporean. Another way of saying it is I find myself relatively free of some of the more ideological baggage that I think yeah. Americans encounter. Like, does this yeah. feel right? Like, do I want to? Does it feel authentic? <laughs> A lot of it for me, and I do have this kind of hard nose, kind of like, well, it works. So just do it, right? Like, <laughs> it's unpleasant. Like, so the, the whole thing I said about, you know, no one ever asked me what I wanted. Yeah. I do use that a little bit in the sense that I don't spend too long thinking about, is this enjoyable? Or like, mm. am I having a good time? There's a mm. side of me that's like, look, this is necessary. This is going to work. Just do it. Just kind of get mm. on with it. I mean, I don't want to speak for all Singaporeans, but that is something I feel I brought with me. When you think back on Little Doglish, were there any little pieces that pointed to who you are now? I'll start by saying I'm on record, probably on another podcast on some of my writing, <laughs> sort of giving this flippant answer that, you know, people ask me, what's the main qualification to be a coach? Yeah, and yeah. I sort of flippantly said, you know what, grow up and survive a dysfunctional family, that will make you a really good coach. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of said it flippantly and, and felt kind of bad about that after, mm. because there's mm. a truth to it. And by the way, I, I always wonder if my parents are listening because they're both still <laughs> alive and I feel bad about that. But I think, you know, there is a truth 
internet when I try to think about what I really mean. I grew up a really sensitive child. <laughs> so mm. just sort of very observant and quiet and mm. kind of constantly taking in what was mm. going on around me. Mm. And when I talk about dysfunction in the family, I, my family's actually pretty privileged. We grew up pretty privileged, I have to say that. But there was just so much unhappiness, just mm. so much unhappiness in the family with my parents, both of them, even though they are still married. And I think what I mean when I say the coach I am today comes from having survived that mm. is that I was so steeped in the sense of their suffering. Mm. and also not wanting them to suffer. I, mm. in some ways, loved them so much mm. and wanted so badly for them not to suffer that mm. this visceral feeling of wishing that they would see how they were suffering, that wishing for them to see how they were making each other suffer and making other people yeah. suffer, that really stayed with me. Today, I think there is an element of it that I do bring to my clients because a little bit of that love, not to use, you know, not to be sappy, yeah. but a little bit of that, I really do wish for you to have what you want. I really do wish for you not to suffer. And that is, I think, the core of my kind of coaching practice. Yeah. Of course, I'm, I'm kind of skipping a lot of steps here, yeah. but it was a long yeah. <laughs> way around to coming to that. Yeah. And the biggest insight and realization for me coming into coaching is no, like that heartbreak. Mm. Yes, you have to heal it, but then that's the gift. That is mm. the opening. You went to Wharton, studied business. You went to Stanford, got your PhD in English. You went over to McKinsey and rose to like leadership in McKinsey. And now you're working at a VC firm as a coach in residence and building up your coaching practice. That like yearning for diversity, but also like this deep mastery. Is that how you see yourself? Or is there a different story you tell about your journey? And how do you connect those pieces? A word that you kind of used in that question was depth. And that mm. is something I do identify with. I sort of abhor superficiality. <laughs> I kind of want to get into the thing, like kind of go through something and through the other side and to have sort of realized the essence of it. You know, like mm. what is the essence of academia? What is the essence of consulting? I mm. feel like I've sort of had this, always had this drive to truly not just do something, but understand its mm. bones, you know? Mm. There's something satisfying about that for me. The diversity, I mean, the, the kind of zigs and zags of my career, I think the first thing I would say is, you know, because you asked about how I tell that story. The first thing I would yeah. say is that it can look like you can sort of piece it together now. Like, yeah, that makes sense in this light. Yeah. That was not the experience going through it. <laughs> mm. I've always had this feeling. So I'm not someone who maybe would say like, I have a lot of faith in the benevolence of the universe. I don't think I make my way through the world that way. But I will say that in these big career moves, there's always been a feeling of sort of the hand of fate <laughs> or mm. some higher wisdom in it, because I've always sort of just known that mm. it was time to do something. And then something would sort of present itself. Mm. So I'll give you an example. Uh, not many people know this unless they were with me at Penn, but I was an English major. And when I, I, I actually applied to Penn not knowing what Wharton was, if you can believe that. Mm. I had no idea mm. that it was a, you know, number one business undergraduate business yeah. program, blah, blah, blah. I totally intended to go there and be an English major. Mm -hmm. And then arrived and like, well, this is Wharton thing. And then, you know, the good being a good Asian student being like, <laughs> oh, like that seems practical that, you yeah. know, that would totally make my parents feel like the tuition was worth it. So I yeah. actually, it was actually the English major that came first and the Wharton huh. degree came after. I wow. actually kind of applied to do that secondarily. The other thing is that I actually applied to consulting back in 
the summer of 2009. Uh, that oh. was going to be what I wanted to do. Yeah. And then the recession happened. And mm. I remember being in my English professor advisor's office in the summer, having applied to these internships. And a call came. And it's one of those three firms which will remain unnamed and said, we could only take one this mm. year. And I'm sorry, it's not you. And I was just like, what am I going to do? Because, mm. you know, I didn't have an internship lined up. Usually those things get you your full-time yeah. offer. My advisors who will all have spent years, all, all, all my undergraduate career saying, you need to do this PhD. You would be wonderful at it. And I was always yeah. like, what is a PhD? Why would I spend six years in school doing this thing? I have no idea <laughs> what this is. And I was there and it just clicked. It was like, why am I kind of trying to swim upstream on this consulting thing mm. when there was this whole path that, uh, you know, it's almost like people were like throwing flowers on the path and saying, mm. you know, my mm. advisors were saying, oh, you know, even if you don't apply, we'll write you the letter of recommendation now and maybe you come back for it later yeah <laughs> and it was just like okay well no brainer i guess i'm doing this thing again this, yeah. this feeling yeah. of like the hand of fate you know yeah. And then from the PhD to consulting, I actually had a moment of crisis sort of like two thirds of the way through my PhD, mm. not about the PhD, because I always intended to be a professor. It was more about the reality of the job market and the academic mm. job market, which has, I mean, it worsened from 2010 to 2017, which I, when I was doing my PhD has gone even worse since. So that reality was starting to hit. And also the realization that, you know, I am not someone who can imagine my doing one thing for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, the diversity back to the diversity and the wish to kind of do different things deeply so I had a bit of a crisis I was like I am 31 years old mm. I have never had a real job watching the degree aside <laughs> you know oh my god like what am I going to do and I remember talking to my friends many of whom were at Penn with me and they were like well you know you applied for consulting back then you could mm. probably still do it they hire PhDs mm. I remember looking it up frantically in <laughs> I think it was the spring or summer of 2016 or 2015 mm. And I was like a week from the deadline. I was like, okay, I'm just going to throw my hat in. I, yeah. I, you know, I, I guess I've been through this process before. I'll probably figure it out. Mm. And then one thing led to another and I got the job. And then, mm. you know, five years at McKinsey. So yeah. at each point, I feel like it wasn't planned. I did not mm. plan anything. Mm. I did not plan for the way my CV looks. It sort of yeah. just happened. And so I have this sort of faith, I think, from, mm. that ex from those experiences that if you sort of just do trying to just deal with what's in front of you and try mm. to serve the best of your ability that things work out. And I, that is, again, not how I felt while I was mm. there. <laughs> it mm. is perhaps how I feel about it now. Some of the things that have popped up thematically as we've been talking are comfort in the knowingness of the next step and kind of trusting that if I'm just focused on the right next step, and you mentioned the word service, that will allowing the less to come, the rest to come through. There's a pragmatism around here's the way things are and don't baggage yourself unnecessarily with ideology. And thirdly, there's an, an understanding of almost the performative nature of corporate life and that it is learnable and performable. And there we go. Is that how you define the core philosophy of your executive coaching? Or is there something mm. else or deeper that like comes to mind? Service for sure. I think that mm. has been, if there is a kind of through line, 
It yeah. is service. And I really do believe that by sort of serving to the best of your abilities, what's in front of you, it sort of works out. During my PhD, I was, you know, doing being a dutiful PhD student, but I always tell people that there's only so much reading, writing and, and researching you can do in a day. So I was left with a lot of this mental energy and time I didn't know what to do with. So I yeah. started volunteering with Minds Matter Bay. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was teaching, I was building curriculum, I was building their three-year program. It turned out that one of the reasons I got an interview with McKinsey mm. was because I'd done all that work. Mm. Again, not intended. I didn't do mm. any of that thinking I would one day apply to a job because yeah. I was always going to be a professor. So again, one example of like, it works out. Yeah. I just wanted to offer service. I didn't, I had no idea how it would, I mean, it honestly didn't help my PhD yeah. or, you know, academics don't care about that stuff, but yeah. it worked out. So one of those moments of, you know, having faith. In terms of the the coaching philosophy, yes, I think I, I bring, again, that pragmatism of like, don't get too caught. I, th- I think there are ways that corporate culture or, you know, I, I don't want to generalize, but there are ways that our jobs can make us feel like there's something wrong with us. Mm. Like when you get mm-hmm. feedback, like, you know, a lot of Asian clients get feedback, you need to speak up more, you need to take up more space and have this presence. Mm. It's hard not to hear that as like, there's something wrong with you. Mm. Like you're too mm. shy, you're too, you know, one can start to apply these labels and identify with them. But yeah. what you said, these things are learnable that, mm. you know, if you, there is a kind of, again, that hard nose pragmatism of like, you know, because you could spend years figuring out your personality flaws. <laughs> yeah. But there is a part of it that's just pragmatic and you can't learn yeah. those things. So I do bring that that spirit to my clients as well. Mm. But I think the deeper, if there is a philosophy or spirit of my coaching practice, it does go back to what I shared about growing up and with mm. my family, which is when we suffer and when we don't know how to hold our own suffering, it spills over and mm. we make others suffer. And mm. I think that is more the kind of core philosophy mm. of my coaching practice, which is mm. when I like why work with founders, why work with leaders, because these are people who are making decisions every day with the potential to have an impact on hundreds, thousands, millions of people. Mm. We've all been mm. in situations like a CEO, like a gesture, a word, mm. a mm-hmm. look, you know, and like a hundred people's lives change that day. And mm-hmm. that's what I mean. When we're not careful about how we hold our suffering, mm-hmm. you know, people in these positions have the potential to make so many people suffer. And I think if, I trust that most people listening probably have their own yeah. experiences of this. So for me, there is almost a sort of moral responsibility. You know, this is work you have to do, you should do, because mm-hmm. if you don't know how to suffer well, you will make other people suffer. One of the pushbacks that I could imagine, we need somebody to build a business. We're not investing in this founder in order to reduce suffering. What would be your response to somebody who came up with that counter? I have sort of responses at two registers, one more practical and one spiritual. So I'll give you both. So let me start with the practical. I think we routinely underestimate how closely linked those two things are. Like we Mm. don't think that, you know, working on our blind spots, we don't think that holding our suffering, also because of language I'm using, right? Like what does holding your suffering have to do with like ROI? (laughs) Or like Mm. what does it have to do with returns? Mm. Well, again, I go back to, so there's part of this that's like, you know, the language I'm using maybe 
may feel a bit esoteric. But again, we all know from personal experience how much mental, emotional, even physical energy these day-to-day sufferings take up. And we know that it feels small, but can also become big very fast. Mm-hmm. When you're a CEO and you have, let's say, I'm just hypothetically, let's say you have a really big blind spot around kind of having your flaws pointed out to you <laughs> or ha- getting feedback on like, you know, you can't, you're one of those people who just needs to believe in the mission and you're like, I, I have to put blinders on and not hear, you know, how yeah. this is maybe not working out. Well, you know, that works for you. If, and if anything, it can be very compelling mm. <laughs> to investors and other early employees. But how long do you think you can go? before that becomes the culture of this Mm. thousand person company. And now it becomes incredibly difficult to reverse. Now you have this thousand person apparatus for propping up your own need Mm. not to face something. Mm. So we severely underestimate, you know, Mm. this soft touchy feely stuff and how very quickly the practical consequences come. How the phrase I use is how quickly the bill comes due. For these things mm-hmm. that we are not mm-hmm. taking care of. Um, so that's a practical. The more spiritual answer of like, you know, what's, you know, I, I, people ask, what's the ROI of coaching? Why should I invest in this? Why should I pay for this? Yeah. The first thing I will say is that when we talk about success, like we tend to think successful, not successful. Like we kind of think mm. of it as a binary thing, but we don't think of kind of at what scale, mm. right? Like success in what sense? Success at what time scale? So mm. some of the things I'm talking about, like you know, holding your suffering, not making other people suffer, covering your blind spot, being self-aware. As much as I've, I, I talk about it as like, this is your moral responsibility. Mm. I also want to be fair to the people who come to me, prospective clients to say, you know, yes, I do believe it is your moral responsibility, but it is also optional. Mm. I really do believe that as well in the sense that I cannot say that you cannot be successful without doing this work. We know, Mm. again, plenty of examples of people who have a lot of success, but who do things that, you know, maybe are not the kind of, not the kinds of things I'm talking about. But again, I, I say success in at what cost? Success and what time scale? Back to the the phrase, the bill always comes due. Mm. I, I really do believe that. Mm. And it may not be you paying the bill. It may be your family. It may mm. be your employees. It may be the families of your employees. So mm. I think it's, again, what, what aperture do we take to mm. understand success? How different do you personally see your role to executives as a coach versus the way you did as a consultant? How do you think that having been a consultant affects the way you coach? Well, they're both in some ways helping professions. I don't know Mm. how many consultants would kind of identify with that. There is, again, the element of service, right? Yeah. The consultants are not claiming the success. We are helping and we celebrate like helping our clients get to where they want to be. So in some ways, there is this service to someone else's agenda. I think that Mm. they do have in common. And both professions are very grounded at their relationship businesses. And Mm. you have to be someone who knows how to build trust. You have Mm. to be someone who knows how to relate to people. It's not just about Mm. having the right answer. You would not get hired (laughs) at one of these (laughs) places, just just having the right answers. That they they have a lot in common. I suppose the one extra thing I, I bring, I have brought with me from consulting is call it a kind of organizational acumen or awareness. That I wouldn't mm. have had coming straight out of a PhD. Mm. Just like, mm. what does a boardroom look like? What are some board and executive dynamics? Mm. What are some, how do these politics play out? Or, you know, so that, you know, it is, it is a form of basis of at least cognitive empathy with my clients and what they are going yeah. through. So that yeah. definitely I've brought from consulting. 
What are the things that you find yourself observing in early stage founders that you think most people are ignoring? For me, it's less about the trait and mm. more about how you hold it. It would be very difficult for me to say that this type makes a good founder, that type makes a bad founder. So, for example, you know, maybe there is more of an archetype: the founder who is visionary, mm. who is sort of like you know the leader who kind of is passionate and kind of brings other people along with this energy. Well, one might say, okay, well, if you're more introverted and reserved and thoughtful, that's not going to be the right profile for that kind of mm. founder. But I can't say that because I have seen very successful founders on both sides of this. It's mm. a question of how you hold your tendencies. Now,、mm. if you're really introverted and reserved, do you do that to a fault? Are、mm. you compelled to always be prepared and you know conserve your energy, or do you have choice?、Mm. Do you have this ability to say, "Well, I, I yes, that is how I usually operate, and it has worked out really well for me." But、mm. I am aware that in certain cases it doesn't, and I feel the freedom. To try something different, I、mm. feel the freedom to move towards problems and people when maybe I would otherwise want to retreat.、Mm. And same for the people who are, you know, extroverted and 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 very kind of like energetic. Well, do you do that to a fault? Can you、mm. only be that way? What happens to you in a situation where retreat and thoughtfulness and reflection are necessary? Mm. So it's less about what your default personality is; it's、mm. how you hold that, and also its blind spot.、Mm. And people、mm. vary in this. Some people, some people, some people, blind spots truly are blind spots. They have、yeah. no words for it. They don't even know that、mm. it is a thing. And some people、mm. are very aware. Like yes, that's a blind spot. It is something I'm working on. And there's a sort of move towards the difficulty. You know,、mm. Yes, this is something I struggle with, and I am trying. I、mm. am going against my tendency in some ways, and I'm willing to do that. So、mm. that, to me, is more the the thing that I value and prize in a leader、yeah. more than any specific trait. You mentioned that the Enneagram as a personality test that you're particularly familiar with and, and use quite a bit. I'd love it if you could briefly talk about like why you find that particular categorization. Helpful. The main reason is that because it worked for me. <laughs> I <laughs> offer it to clients because I have spent, you know, close to a decade working with the Enneagram on my own stuff. I never knew that one day I would want to bring it to clients. But again, it's this lived、mm. experience of knowing its transformative potential that、mm. allows me to speak to it and use it. And kind of guide my clients in it very differently than if I were just sort of like intellectually saying this is a thing I learned.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that is,、mm-hmm. I think that is very key. But to kind of zoom out and talk about personality systems in general, why Enneagram and why how I hold that, I think of these systems as sort of different languages. Like you can use different languages to describe the object. You can use English, you can use French, you can use German, and all these different languages. And for me, it's just been choosing the language that resonates most with me.、Mm. Because I think like、mm. the MBTI and Enneagram might look at the behavior or motivation and just say different things.、Mm. So it's、mm. sort of just like a way of getting a handle on some of these things. What feels most important in your own life design? I would say today, as a coach, primarily. The main thing to design around is space. 
which is quite different from being an academic or being a consultant, where you could say, like, if you have space, you should be reading one more article. You should、mm. be starting one more project. You should, or as a consultant, if you have space, there's probably something you're not doing. Yeah. <laughs> you should be developing a new client. As different as those two things are, they actually have more and similar and more、mm. similar than not in this sense of if there is space, it means that there's something I'm not doing. And I carry that、mm. a lot from the places I've been, the institutions I've worked with. And it, this、mm. is sort of this kind of a little bit of the insecure overachiever mentality, right? Like this deep unease with space. Mm. And time. If I look、mm. at my calendar and like, oh, wow, I have no meetings today, the instinct of that sort of ethos might be, wow, no one needs me. I'm in trouble.、Mm. Right. I should be doing more. I'm、mm. not helpful anymore. I have no more、mm. value. And as a coach, it's easy to lapse into that. I need to get more clients. I need to get on LinkedIn. I need to、mm. <laughs> post more, write more. But I have realized that what makes me a better coach is getting more comfortable with this unstructured time. Because、mm. it often, and I, I try not to overburden it. Like, you have to journal and you have to meditate and you have to,、mm. yeah. <laughs> like, that just, that just reinstates that sense of needing to do in a different form.、Mm. So, being comfortable、mm. with space and whatever comes up. Maybe I realize I need an hour to really collect my thoughts and put into writing what I've been observing with my clients. The thing about coaching that is very different from consulting or academia is that in many ways, Those other jobs rewarded burning out. The、mm. more you do, the more tired you are. Yeah, like, you know, stay up late till 3 a.m. doing that proposal. You get rewarded for that.、Mm. Not so here.、Mm. If I try to do more than I can,、mm. I become a worse coach because、mm. people show up to sessions. They have an hour with me. They expect me to be there fully present and all of me available. If、mm. there is any part of me that is just so tired and sort of like on edge,、yeah. I am doing them a huge disservice. Are there any habits or practices you recommend for your clients? Who are like seeking to build more comfort with space. I'm tempted to start listing things to do, which、yeah. <laughs> so, to, my, to my point, like, please, listeners, do not take this as、yeah. like my <laughs> prescription. I have been in weekly therapy for what feels like the last decade. You know, it's not that everyone, I, I'm saying everyone needs therapy, but it is sort of this time for、mm. me. Where I am、mm. literally, you know, this is just me to work on me.、Mm. There is no pragmatic outcome here. There is no goal I am trying to meet. There is no KPI. It's just this commitment. This is a sort、mm. of practice to show up week after week、yeah. and to kind of work with what is there and to just almost like soak in. Like, this is just about me. I'm not helping、mm. anyone. I'm not doing、mm. anything. Therapy has become a sort of,、uh, in some ways, supervision for me. It's coaching supervision because、mm. it helps me be a better coach. Meditation, for sure, in whatever form you find it, that has been very helpful to me. But I think, you know, what we said about the anxiety that comes up with space, I think actually it's whatever helps you work with that. Because,、mm. and what is that about? Is it about this deep, you know, again, this need to be needed, this need to be helpful,、mm. this sense that I am of no value. I don't know what to do with myself. I want to share with you kind of three different people. The first is like Dalglish at about <laughs> nine. The second is Dalglish right in the middle of your, his PhD. And the third would be Dalglish right in the middle of his time at McKinsey. What pops up for you to share with each of those folks and, and why? What would I want to say to nine year old me? It would be that what is most painful now, not, I, I mean, who knows if a nine year old would understand that, but what is most painful now、mm. will one day be the greatest gift. 
if there's a reason to go through it, like, you know, when we look at the way we suffer, it's like, why do I have to suffer this way? Why do I have to be in this situation? There's a lot of mm-hmm. angst in that way. But mm-hmm. to know that, you know, this will one day have meaning and not only mm-hmm. meaning, one, one day this will be the thing that you can offer others. I think mm-hmm. that would have been amazing to know. And it, it brings mm-hmm. to mind a quote from, you know, Thomas Frankel that man search for meaning. I love the phrase he said, Actually, I think he's quoting another poem, so it's not his, but what gives light must endure burning. Yeah, that mm. this burning is necessary, as painful as it is, because one day it will be your light. To me in the middle of my PhD, it's kind of the thing I said about, you know, sort of having a little bit more pronoia, <laughs> like the, the world conspires for your benefit. It will all make sense. Because mm. I think I had such panic about having made certain decisions that just didn't make sense. Like, why did I do this PhD if I didn't want to be a professor? And now I mm. am 31 and have no real professional experience. Again, this 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 sense of devote yourself to service, devote yourself to doing the best you can with what's right in front of you, and it will work mm. out. And as I say that, you know, it's also, I, I think I, even now, I need to hear that. In the middle of McKinsey, gosh, I think... And this is something I did come to later, but I think if I if there's one thing I wish I had known earlier, it was that that it's so easy to play the game that others have kind of recruited you to play. Do well at this, learn this, meet these markers, we'll promote you, we'll, you know, reward you in such and such ways. But when I look back, the whole time there was this other game under mm. it, which was what am I learning? Who am I becoming? What am I getting? What am I taking from this experience that Mm. means something to me Mm. outside of the language and the vocabulary and the frameworks and the models of the firm? Mm. Because that is what I'm going to take with me, right? Mm. And it's what I have taken with me, right? Mm. 20, 30, 40 years from now, I would hope people are not still talking about what title I had when I left or (laughs) what I did. But what have I done with what I've learned? Mm. Who, who did I become and what did I do with that? And now it's time for our recurring spoken story segment when we hear from the people behind the leaders and organizations that we look at. For this week, I wanted to talk to some of the people who've worked with Dalglish, who call him a colleague or coach. And my question for them was simple. What is Dalglish Chu's superpower? What makes him so effective as a business executive and coach? First, I talked to Justice Luttig, an investor at Authentic Ventures. Here's what he had to say. Dalglish's superpower is his ability to, in a very short period of time, strip away the layers that are lying within your true self when working through a problem. The way in which he understands and reads people brings to four these key issues that, that are underlying what you're going through at that point in time. And, and that removes all the noise in, in trying to get to the fundamental key point that, that you're working through. I also got to talk to two co-founders working with Dalglish, Nathan Lee and Selena Chi, co-founders of Juniper Behavioral Health. Pro tip, they're hiring if you're interested. Let's hear what they had to say. Dalglish's superpower is his ability to bring the best from you, especially when you didn't know what that best version looked like beforehand. He's incredibly thoughtful in his direction, and he's challenged me personally in ways that are complex and nuanced that I wouldn't have done my own, but has helped me develop as a founder, both in leadership and in character. 
He also doesn't just take your words at face value. He digs deep into understanding your motivations intellectually and emotionally and how to channel that energy into becoming a leader at your fullest potential. Doglish's superpower is his deep understanding of what makes each individual person tick and his ability to help people use that to develop authentic styles of leadership. He takes such an individual approach to each person because each person is so different. And he's incredible at getting to real and thought-provoking insights about a person so quickly. Even within our first few sessions, he was making spot-on observations about me that I had never even thought about myself. And lastly, let's hear from Caitlin Donnelly, the Managing Director at Avalanche VC and fellow partner with Dalglish in investing. Dalglish's superpower is that he's able to really understand other people very quickly and in a super deep way and understand kind of their motivations, what makes them tick, and then can help other people see that in, in themselves, see things that they might not have fully understood or had the words to process. And then they can see what's been holding them back and what they might need to do to improve and grow in the future. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode, dear listener. Thank you so much for giving me the gift of your time. As I reflect on Dalglish's amazing story and the impact that he has had on countless organizations and leaders, I'm struck by the fact that while the bedrock of his value comes from his deep business chops, inquisitive mind, and commitment to personal growth, the fuel behind it is simply the fact that Dalglish cares. That was true of that nine-year-old in Singapore, and it is true of this investor and executive coach today. And that is the kind of caring that can't really be taught, can't really be bought, but once freely given is invaluable. And so my hope for you, dear listener, is that this week you reflect on at least one person who you want to give the gift of your caring and one person who you are grateful for choosing to give that gift to you. Our world is better for it. As always, this is Venture Visionaries, and I'm Thomas. I'll see you next week. 